eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Greetings. Welcome to the NASCAR NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. This is our first episode of 2018, and it's going to serve as a simultaneous look in the rearview mirror last season and ahead to the upcoming season. Over the course of 55 episodes last year, we talked to drivers, crew chiefs, analysts, executives, engineers, Hall of Famers, media members, track presidents, and what hopefully emerged was a tapestry of where NASCAR is as an auto racing entity and where things are headed in 2018. So in this episode, we're going to play some of my favorite and insightful bites of conversations we had last year and chart how that fits into what we might see this year. Last season brought the introduction of stage racing, and while there probably isn't a similar watershed event that will affect races this season, there will be some significant impacts on the competition. We are waiting on the delineation of some of those specifics, probably coming later this month, but NASCAR has revealed some of them and also has hinted at many of them toward the end of last season. This year's rules will feature a common splitter, a common radiator, and oil cooler, both of which should decrease downforce. We know there will be a single-engine rule at all events, including the Daytona 500. That's intended to reduce horsepower budgets. And there also will be an overhauled inspection process that should streamline post-race to avoid announcing penalties midweek. Vice President of Competition Steve O'Donnell was a guest on the NASCAR and NBC podcast last July, and he discussed some of that and also when the next iteration of car model could arrive in the Cup Series. I'd say the biggest focus right now is bringing all those parties together to talk about Gen 7 and where we want to go collectively as an industry. Maybe not so much of how much are we spending on spindles and in different parts and pieces, but what would be the coolest technology we can put in that car to showcase to the fan. So I'd say, you know, within the next, you know, anywhere from two to four years, um, you could see that. And, and I think, you know, that will depend on, you know, the equipment that we have out there right now and, and making sure that uh, we give the teams the best option. Obviously, the OEMs have a huge impact on that. And, and the biggest thing for us is just getting everybody to work together and understand, you know, what this will be about. And ultimately, this is going to benefit the fans. It's going to make the racing better. And if so, great, let's, let's go. When it came to rules enforcement last year, there was a lot of chatter, particularly about whether ratcheting up penalties to the point of stripping wins would become an option and also a philosophical debate on what actually constitutes cheating and auto racing, which, of course, is inherently built on pushing the limits. NBC Sports analyst Jeff Burton has some of the strongest and most cogent points of view on this topic, and he shared some of those with us. And so the the teams have some accountability in this and to say, okay, here's the rules. We know we can't break them. We know we have to stay within them. And when they're out of tolerance by thousands of an inch, they come back and say, you know, they want to convince people that that's NASCAR's fault. I don't believe that. I believe that's the team's fault. The problem and what's difficult for the teams and when I have compassion for the teams is I'm driving a race car and I want it to go as fast as it can go. And my crew chief's job is to get every thousands of an inch he can get. And if he's not, I'm not going to run in the front. 
Well, sometimes when we, when we do that, we're going to go over. And so it's just a vicious circle. So, so at the end of the day, I think NASCAR will have to change some policies. They're going to have to up penalties. They're going to have to make people wish they hadn't have done things. And at the same time, they're going to have to change their philosophy on when they check stuff. So if you go, and, and I hear there should be post, no post-race tech. That's insane. If you had no post-race tech with the innovative people in that cup garage, and the ability to have access to engineering. If you had zero post-race tech, it would be a free-for-all. You have to have post-race tech. You cannot get rid of post-race tech, but the things you check and how you check them post-race, that philosophy from NASCAR may need to change. People that are around the technology today and understand the technology today and what these teams can do, they understand there has to be post-race tech. So this is something to watch this season. Can the narrative be changed and de-emphasize the attention consumed by rules enforcement? I think you would find a virtually universal industry consensus that encumbered should be excised from the NASCAR lexicon and probably will be in 2018. But NASCAR officials also are trying to avoid indirectly supplying oxygen to other storylines that they feel detracts from the perception of the competition. Chief Operating Officer Brent Dewar, who is also a former GM executive, spoke at length about one such topic that routinely drives him nuts. I, I struggle at times with a lot of the, the media programs we do where there's just too much talk about the business of football, the business of NASCAR, the business of soccer, the big business of that with the fans. And we have some of our venues which do a great job, but they get off of talk sports radio to talking talk sports business radio. I'd be happy to go in every day to talk about the business of the sport, uh, but the fans really want to engage about the sport. And uh, I, I see that part of the challenge because we're in a transition, a natural transition on the business of the sport. And many of them go through that. And so uh, what we've instituted with Mike Helton and myself the last, uh, you know, I'd say four or five years, four in my part, along with Brian France is engaging the industry in the business conversations. It never really was done before. It was done on a very fragmented basis. But what happens is we need to not get ahead of things in terms of the business aspects of today versus what we're planning in the future and mixing that into messaging to the fans because fans really don't want to hear about you know some of the things we're working on initiatives that are behind the scenes and I had that training on the auto side and uh, we never talked about the future car because we had the one we had to sell today and so we separated we separated the business to say how do we focus on today's car and make that better and have that storyline but you have to work on advanced engineering you have to work on advanced uh, technology just don't get ahead of it because you don't want to not have the enjoyment of today's car, if that makes sense. So that's the transition we're going through. And I would say, I would say by and large, the industry after the four years I've been here, they understand it better today. But it's, it's an evolving learning. The culture has been hard to change in that regard where we may talk about, you know, should we study quieter engines? Oh, my God. I mean, we, we do a test and all of a sudden it's, it's in the market. You know, we're going to do something crazy to the engines. No, no. It's going to be purely authentic like NASCAR. But if you don't work on those things, then you'll never be ready for the change. Sure. And uh, I've learned pretty valuable lessons in these four years that the NASCAR fans are all about change providing it's relevant to what they want and the benefit they want. What they don't like is talking about change. And I see people talking about change when we're really just studying things. And it's, uh, that's the evolution difference, I would say, between what we're doing today and maybe what we've done 20 years ago. Clearly, the feel-good competition story of 2017 belonged to series champion Martin Truex Jr. It's well-documented how he and his team overcame much adversity and tragedy 
to deservedly win the title. There are many things about Furniture Row Racing that make the number 78 Toyota unique, but it's the bonds shared by the team that are its foundation. And I think that starts with crew chief Cole Pern. I wrote last year that he is the soul of this group, and he expanded on the positive dynamics of having a Denver outpost for NASCAR and why it works so well for the team. Yeah, I think I think it's definitely like an organic kind of natural process is just kind of the people that have all stayed as part of the team you know we're all similar age you know we kind of you know all have that kind of rough around the edges kind of feel to ourselves um and then we've as we've added people and stuff we've just kind of added people we like and then that naturally is just more people like that and then all of a sudden you have a, a you know continuous group of you know where we're all similar age we all kind of hang out together we're all going through similar things in our lives together and it just really breeds a lot of closeness so you know that's definitely on the road crew side and then you know as far as the shop side goes it's just very laid back atmosphere you know just being out there is even when it's hair on fire we're we're hair on fire about the right things you know it's not politic driven it's it's hair on fire about how we're going to get cars done and how we're going to get cars better and you know it's definitely a a little bit different vibe than you know some of the bigger teams I've been at. It's a group effort for sure. There's not a lot of hierarchy. There's not a lot of like chain of command. We ask all the time like who actually is the boss here. So it's uh it's definitely a different vibe that way. I don't think you know I think there's four or five of us that probably all have a pretty solid say in what happens. And luckily we just all generally look at things the same way. So it's it's nice when you have other you know strong personalities around you that you know you value their opinion and. They value yours and you generally come up to, you know, what the right move is. So when you have that kind of support, it definitely it makes the whole group that much stronger. Cole Pern was one of several crew chiefs we had on the NASCAR NBC podcast during 2017. In the wake of his seventh championship with Jimmy Johnson, Chad Canales was a guest before the season. And he shared the fastidious vetting process that goes into being hired for the number 48 team. It's a challenge. You know, there's people that race for a living and there's people that live to race. Right. That's it. And exactly. that's, that's what we do. Um, we, we live to race. We want to go out there and we want to compete. We want to, we want to be so successful. We put people back on their heels every time they come into the racetrack. And that's, that's what we do. That's what we want to do. Now we're not, we don't always do it, but that's our goal, right? Um, so to, to find those people, we've, we've been very fortunate, uh, with us. And I think if you look at our tenure and the people that have been with us, we don't hire a lot of people from other teams mm-hmm. too much that are, let's say a seasoned veteran. You know, I don't, I don't, we don't, we don't very, very rarely do we go say, okay, we're going to hire this guy from Gibbs and put him on the 48 car because this guy is the best X. We go through and we do our diligence to try to find the best person that we possibly can, the, the best uh, fit for the team and the person that has the, the ability and the aptitude to, to do the job. And then we like to train them mm-hmm. because we feel like then there's buy-in. Uh, you don't always have the, well, we did this this way over here. I don't really care how they do it elsewhere. We just care <laughs> about the way that we do it here at Hendrick Motorsports and the way that we do it on the 48 team. There's a lot of people that have worked with the 48 team throughout years and years and years that, that didn't fit right. Just because they don't understand the culture or the buy-in of what it takes to be a part of the Lowe's team. And it's, I honestly feel to be a part of the 48 team is a different culture than it is to be with most other teams in the garage. We bookended the season with two Stuart Haas racing crew chiefs who made headlines in 2017. Rodney Childers took Kevin Harvick back to the cup championship round for the third time in four years 
And though the number four came up short, it was a rebound to form after a 2016 season in which the team tried to go slower to avoid NASCAR scrutiny. Here's Childers on the podcast explaining why he no longer wanted to lead every practice, qualifying session, and lap. I got to the end of 2015, and I kind of thought that was the wrong thing to do. Hmm. Um, I felt like that people were looking at us too much, and um, ends up they end up focused on you all the time, and, and um, I felt like we were going over to NASCAR too many times, and to be honest. So... Um, this year, we, you know, this past year, we tried to pull it back a little bit and, and not be that way. And, um, you know, we would go out and practice and run slow the first three laps until the tires wore in some and then start running hard just so we wouldn't be at the top of the sheet. And, you know, and then when it come time for the chase, we started, you know, going as hard as we could go again. And it ate me alive. Like, I couldn't stand it. <laughs> I could not stand it, and um, I've already told these guys, you know, going into this year, I'm done with that. Yeah. We're going back to the same things that we said uh, when we started this team, and it's not going to change from now on. We're going to try to be fast all the time. Crew Chief Tony Gibson opened the 2017 season by realizing a childhood dream in winning the Daytona 500 with Kurt Busch. It might have been even more special because the Daytona Beach native knew it probably would be his last. After the season, as expected, Stuart Haas announced Gibson would move to a role in the shop. It was a move that Gibson had been telegraphing, particularly in this snippet on the podcast that also explains the role he will play behind the scenes this year. That's what I want to do here at Stuart Haas. When I come off the road, I want to help all four teams. I want to be the guy that can walk around and keep some of these little things that bite you in the butt and make you out of race. I want to be that guy that can help do that. I, you know, I don't want to be just a number. I want to be a guy that's contributing and, and to make this a stronger place and a better place and to work and maybe help these guys, you know, help the crew chiefs that are coming in that maybe need need the guy with the, with the experience to help them. Because uh, when your first time on that pit box is not easy. When you have to make a decision at Bristol in less than a half a second, the experience kicks in and you'll you'll make a call based off experience when you don't have time to look at that computer or, or you know look at past history I, what i don't remember what it's did what am i supposed to do? you're done yeah. by then it's over so sometimes it's just your gut you have to run off of and i want to be the guy that helps these guys with the new guys do that one of our most downloaded episodes of 2017 was about another nascar veteran who was stepping away unfortunately it wasn't by choice in this instance Matt Kenseth had revealed midway through the season that he wouldn't be returning to Joe Gibbs Racing in 2018, but it wasn't until a sit-down with the NASCAR NBC podcast at Texas Motor Speedway in November that he disclosed that he probably wouldn't be returning to the Cup Series either. I'm pretty sure I know what's there for next season. You know, I've, I've put a lot of thought into it. I mean, probably, probably mainly last week, probably pretty much decided after Martinsville, which I kind of already knew that anyway, but decided to take some time off. So I don't know what that means. I don't know if that's, uh, that's forever. I don't know if that's a month. I don't know if that's five months. I don't know if it's two years. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, most likely when you're gone, you don't get the opportunity again, but, um, just don't really, I just don't really feel like it's in the cards. I, you know, so I think I fought it for a long time and I think sometimes, uh, Sometimes you can't make your own decisions, so people make them for you. And yeah. that's unfortunate because I want to make my own decisions and, and felt like in a way I've, I've earned that to, to be able to go out you know, the way that other drivers that have had similar careers have been able to kind of sure. dictate somewhat you know, when your time is up. But anyway, just kind of 
came to the realization that it's probably time to go do something different. So 2018, you don't anticipate being at Daytona or anywhere else that No, I, uh, I, I really don't. Another driver whose career prospects were uncertain for much of last year visited the podcast last August. Danica Patrick would announce nearly three months later that she would retire in 2018 after making final attempts at the Daytona 500 and Indianapolis 500. But during this conversation, she already seemed at peace with what was a gut-wrenching decision. Even with the end of her racing career on the horizon, what struck me was how happy Danica seemed in this conversation, much happier than she'd been in her first appearance on the podcast at the end of 2016. You seem happier. You, you seem like, Thanks. you know, like your life philosophy, your chakras or whatever are in order, right? Um, <laughs> Absolutely. So this strikes me. Root to crown. <laughs> the last time we sat down and did this was in November at the end of a 2016 season that admittedly for you wasn't fun. Sucked. Going through your Instagram and seeing you today, you know, despite the fact that Mercury and how many planets are in Mercury's retrograde? Mercury's in retrograde. Some other ones too. I don't know them okay. all, but I know Mercury's to blame. Some bad uh, juju. <laughs> going on with some planets right now but it's not affecting <laughs> the line your gates open there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on yeah where did it start like what maybe did, it's even easier to see for someone that doesn't spend a t- right. normal amount of time with someone right. it's a little easier when you see someone sporadically to notice differences in them because yeah you're not integrated so right. much so thank you i appreciate that i feel better really yeah see, i'm trying I, to i wrote down i have a uh last year i made a board of of a, like a poster board and I put my goals on it for racing, life, fitness, soul, you know, business, all yeah. this stuff. And one of them was to learn how to meditate more. So learn how to meditate, period. So I've tried to learn how to do that in the last year. So that's the key. I don't meditation. know if that's the only <laughs> thing, but it definitely helps. Clint Boyer improved from an abysmal 2016 in his first season at Stuart Haas Racing, but he still missed the playoffs again which meant that we unfortunately didn't hear that much from him. That's too bad because there are a lot of pensive thoughts disguised in the irreverent hyperactivity that Boyer has in boundless supply. That came through in this scattershot conversation. He talked about how racetracks needed to improve the fan experience, namely on the merchandise midway where the overhaul of the Fanatics tent was a major storyline last year. Again, going back to the experience, I hated that tent, the Fanatics tent. I thought it was terrible. It took away from that carnival type of a feel on the outside, um, our manufacturer's row and all that stuff out front. It was just non-existent. It was boring to go out there. People were standing around waiting for something to happen, and I hate that. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I want them to be entertained, and, and it's not enough today's day and age to just be entertained every now and then. You've got to have something for these people every single moment every minute they're at the racetrack i love how they're doing these concerts and stuff i mean you see how many kids were at the who the chain smokers whatever the chain smokers apparently they smoke a lot of cigarettes but i hope that's what it is um from the line of of ambulances i saw along there it may not have been cigarettes but it could have been maybe they smoke a long time but anyway uh there was a ton of kids showed up for that indianapolis has got it They've got that figured out. They've learned how to capture that young audience. Um, you see that snake pit down there during the Indianapolis 500. We've right. got to continue to do that. You know, everybody wants to say that our demographic and things like that are getting older, getting a little long in the tooth. If you want to ta- capture kids, you know, 30-year-old guys like they like they'd say, mm-hmm. that's me. 
it's going to take a lot to keep me entertained for if you want me there for three days. It's going to take a lot. You're going to have to have some stuff going on and, and, a, and a party going on. I want to be entertained the whole time I'm there. And by the way, I'm a race fan. I want to see cars on the track. I watched the Indianapolis 500 had some marshmallow. <laughs> they Whoever did. the hell that is. He actually wears a marshmallow Jeez, while he spins records. There was records. more kids down there than there almost was people in the... St- I mean, that deal was a hell of a party. All over a marshmallow. We had a good mix of drivers on the NASCAR and NBC podcast in 2017. There was a two-part episode in which we talked to nearly every playoff entrant, and there also were many standalone episodes that hopefully revealed a little more about each of them. Here are snippets from conversations with three veterans, Ricky Stenhouse Jr. on his origins in dirt racing, Denny Hamlin on unsung heroes such as Rodney Eads, who helped him in his late model days, and Jamie McMurray on his interesting approach to social media. I went to the first dirt track. I was six weeks old, and my dad was racing, and that's all I ever knew was going to the dirt track. We went to the dirt track all the time. You know, I was born at noon on a Saturday. My dad went and raced that night. Uh, my parents got married uh, at noon on a Saturday. My dad went and raced that night. So, you know, it's just kind of what we did. Um, I, uh, I graduated high school on a Saturday and then we went and won that night at the dirt race, uh, at our, at our local track. And, um, so I was always at a dirt track and, uh, that's something that I don't want to lose sight of because, um, I feel like I learned a lot, you know, dirt racing, watching my dad, the work ethic of working on the car and trying to, uh, make sure that you've done all the maintenance. I mean, dad made me wax the trailer and, you know, I, I washed the truck and trailer, when we got home and before we left, um, you know, and so just how to take care of things and, and really the core value of, of a dollar. Um, so I felt like I've learned so much from dirt racing that, you know, I don't want to forget where I came from, but also, man, I just love it. And so yeah. being able to get away from, you know, the cup car and, uh, you know, do some other dirt racing, you know, makes you feel uh, a little bit relieved it feels like an eternity ago i still keep in touch with those guys anytime i run any local short tracks they're still on my late model team and yeah what was interesting to me and not interesting but you know makes me so grateful of those guys is that yeah they gave up you know they they were giving up time at home and Mm -hmm. rodney especially worked a full-time job at ge and he would leave his uh, work at five o'clock instead of going home right he he comes to our trailer shop and he's working on the race car and yeah. um it just was so cool for me to to be part of it and how i met rodney is actually i bought his late model uh when i my very first late model is one i bought from him and he was retiring and instead of just selling me the car and saying all right kid good luck he's like hey i'll just i'll come hang out with you guys and make sure you're good for a couple races before i just step aside and he never left wow. and, you know he just stuck with me and was like you know i'll come on and crew chief and help work on the car and he never asked for anything from us he just hung out and worked his tail off on my cars <laughs> every single day and that and that seems like a lifetime ago when you think it back, huh? seems like a lifetime ago. It's, a, yeah. it's crazy. Uh, how, it's, what's, what's that like? You know, it's just a chain of events that I think about all the time of that. If that didn't happen or this didn't happen, it, I never would have been here. And I yeah. wonder, it makes me always think, well, how many others are in my my shoes from 13 years right. ago today mm-hmm. that just they didn't have that one thing that went right, and so they'll never be seen. Yeah. We'll never know who they are. I really enjoy Twitter and Instagram. I yes. I love spying on other people's lives, right? 
I, at the same time... I didn't know find, you were a voyeur. Yeah. <laughs> I, at the same time, find my life kind of boring. I know that maybe if you're a NASCAR fan and you watch on Sunday, you're like, how could that be boring? But I get up the same time every day. I go to the bed at the same time every day. I basically do the same things every single day. I'm I'm a dad when I'm at home. I just do dad things. And I don't find that interesting to share with people on Twitter or on Instagram. One of the major themes of 2018 certainly will be the ongoing youth movement that began reaching critical mass last year. There will be more under-25 drivers and high-quality rides this season than at any point in probably at least the past two decades, perhaps ever. To try to get more of a window into their lives, we sat down with two of them toward the end of last season. So here are Eric Jones on the hard knocks of being a cup rookie and Alex Bowman, on a hard knock he took in his early career. Late models, trucks, Xfinity, it was never really something that I had to really work that hard at. You know, it came pretty pretty naturally to me. There were some things that took me a minute to figure out, you know, longer than others. Obviously, getting on a mile and a half for the first time, it took me a few races. But, you know, we got into the truck series. We won in five races. We got into Xfinity. We, you know, we won in six races. So it was like, you know, it's how it's supposed to be. You know, it, isn't, you know, it just worked out. So... Then when you get into the cup level, it's it's you can't, you know, all all of us are have, you know, natural ability. I mean, that's why we're that's why the, these guys are here. That's why we're at the cup level. So it takes that next step in preparation and work ethic uh, to separate yourself from the rest of the field. And I think Jimmy Johnson is probably the prime example of that. I think you look at Jimmy and you look at his Xfinity career and how that went. You know, I don't know that many people would say that he had that natural speed. You know, he wasn't super fast in Xfinity. He didn't win a ton of races. And then he gets the cup and, you know, and just lights it up. And I think a lot of that was is due to his work ethic. You know, it was something that he had to work at. Honestly, it's it's something that, you know, I think I'm a little jealous of in a way. I mean, you know, he was able to learn at a younger age and earlier on uh, about the preparation and the work it takes. And, and I think really it took me until I got to the Cup Series to really learn more about it and figure out more about it. I didn't really know how to improve myself or how to study for races or how to, you know, how to prepare myself correctly. So it's just taken this year to really learn more about that and figure it out. You were involved in a pretty serious crash during your midget days and spent some time in the ICU. Yeah, the following year, so 2010, I wrecked a dirt midget all by myself. Um, I We're at the dirt track at Las Vegas, and they marked the inside of the track with, like, big tractor tires. And the dirt there is awful. It slicks off like it's like ice. Uh, so the only patch of grip was, like, right against the tractor tires, and I caught the tractor tire with the left front tire and started flipping and I broke a couple ribs and both my collarbones and, like, broke all the blood vessels in my eyes. So my, like, whole face was, like, swollen. Spent, like, I, I guess I punctured and collapsed my lungs, too. Uh, so I spent five or seven days in ICU or something. And it was, I guess, scary to everybody around me. I don't really re- remember the crash. I just remember waking up in the hospital and wondering if there was another race the next day. And I was like, so are we, can we fix the car? And they're like, no, they cut you out of it with the jaws of life. And I'm like, oh, can we get another car? <laughs> so um, I kind of rushed the recovery a little bit too. I got back in a car five weeks later and the doctor said I needed to wait like 10 weeks. So my collarbones still hurt sometimes, maybe because of that. But um, but no, it was, uh, wasn't that scary because I don't remember the crash and it doesn't really bother me. Our most frequent guest in 2017 was our most resonant as well, 
Analyst Steve Letarte's willingness to come on always is appreciated, as is his candor, which made some headlines last year. Steve said on the NASCAR and NBC podcast that he believed NASCAR should curtail the interaction between drivers in pre-race ceremonies. And that prompted some industry debate after getting picked up on NASCAR America. You know, like nothing irritates me more than get to a basketball or a football game early and see two superstars from two separate teams go over and kind of speak to each other pre-event. Now, post-event's different. Mm-hmm. Right? The two quarterbacks want to come on, hey, man, great battle, great battle. You know, that's fine. But pre-event, nothing frustrates me. I want to just turn my ticket in and leave. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm a sports fan. I hate the Yankees. I'm a Red Sox fan. So the last thing I want to do is go to Fenway Park and see a starting pitcher from the Red Sox chumming it up with a Yankee. Like, nah, man, you can take my ticket back. I'm leaving. Yeah. So when I see pre-race, these drivers I was about to ask hanging that. out. Kyle Busch and Joey Logano included before Vegas. They were kind of being chummy on so the intro stage. there is a responsibility to be civil in yeah. this world that NASCAR, we jam them into this little pan. I wish all that changed. Yeah. It's like, I don't wish they were even given the opportunity to hang out with one another. Yeah. I think as a sport, we, we do a disservice to our drivers that we put them in this holding pen behind driver's introduction. Right. I think it should be like, there's a reason locker rooms on two different sides of a stadium. Right? They personally don't want your paths to cross and tell us in battle. Yeah. I wish there was a creative way to do that for race car drivers. We also had great appearances by other analysts and hosts, such as Kelly Stavist, Carolyn Mano, Krista Voda, Kyle Petty. But we have only so much room here on the Best of Podcasts. So with a nod again to the changing of the guard in the cup driver lineup, here's Dale Jarrett with a really interesting take on how generational shifts have an impact on driving styles. When the 2000s came along, we had an influx of different drivers from different parts of the country that maybe hadn't followed and understood exactly what was going on. So it changed a lot. And I see this group of drivers, and this isn't saying anything negative about anyone, but I see this group as a very selfish group, which you have to be to be successful in this. But they're going to race hard. They're going to take what they can get. And there's a lot more taking among this group than there is giving. And so uh, I think that it's going to continue to get very, very interesting as we go forward. Again, on the shorter tracks, road courses, all that type stuff, it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. When you say that, DJ, are you talking more about the younger guys, about guys like the Chase Elliott's or the Ryan Blaney's or Kyle Larson's? Is that yeah. group kind of that? Yeah. yeah. And, and I think it's just the, the world that they're growing up in, you mm-hmm. know, and, and understanding that and how hard they've had to fight to get to this point and, once you get there, there, there's no reason in changing what you do just because you're there. You can't all of a sudden become a really nice guy uh, right. <laughs> when you reach the top or you're going right. to find yourself back on the bottom trying to climb back to the top again. So, uh, you know, uh, but you have people, the, the veterans, the Jimmy Johnsons, the the uh, Kevin Harvicks, uh, the Matt Kenseth. Right. They've all been in that point before. Right. But now they've kind of gone over that. You know, they've had their success. It's not that they're not still selfish. They want to do well. And it's not taking away uh, any of their great talents uh, and, and that desire that they have inside to want to wanna win every single week. But they go about it a little bit differently. Yep. And Kyle Larson and Chase Elliott and, and Ryan Blaney and and even Kyle Busch and, and others that are much younger, Joey Logano, they're going to continue this push that they have. But one day, it'll, it'll change them too. Uh, yeah. But you have to have a measure of success before you really look at that. And you still have to be selfish all the way to the last race that you ever run in your career. If yeah. you're not, uh, then you've probably driven too long. With Toyota's dominance for much of the 2017 season, Chevrolet bringing in a new Camaro this year, and some changes at Ford as well, manufacturers continue to be a critical part of the competitive landscape in Cup. 
Thus, it was great to have a presence from each of NASCAR's big three on the podcast this year. Let's start with Andy Graves, the technical director at Toyota Racing Development, talking about the role he and others play in ensuring collaboration between Furniture Row Racing and Joe Gibbs Racing. We have so many great people at TRD on the vehicle side. We have so many great people at TRD on the engine side. And the teams have great people. But to get them all to click together and everything today, Nate, is a compromise. You know, in in 1991, 1992, you could find a new part and bolt it on the car and it was worth two tenths of a second and it never hurt any other area of the car. Today, every decision you make is a gain in one area and it'll hurt two or three other areas. And so every decision is what is the best compromise at this point? So I think the relationships that TRD has and and with the teams and our involvement and total integration is we're making decisions together and it's okay if if a decision ends up being we're going to put this part on the car and it's going to hurt power but it's going to help mechanical grip okay if it's faster on the stopwatch let's do it and we'll take it on the chin after two dozen years at General Motors, it was revealed this week Alba Cologne will be leaving her executive post at Chevrolet to join Hendrick Motorsports. She was instrumental in getting Chevy teams on the same page with a new racing simulator, and she talked about that on the podcast. You know, it has been unbelievable how the teams, uh, how the teams are working on the deal, how they are helping, but not only that, you know. One thing, I think that... When we come to this job, you need to be, you need to have a little bit of humility. We are the manufacturer, we support, we guide, but we don't know everything. And let's make, let's make clear about that, you know. I, and one thing, we came with the whole, the whole device, and, and again, we have told the, you know, the drivers, the teams, and so on. If you see something that is wrong or that it should be improved, I need immediately that you tell us, and because we need to be working on it. We need to be working on it. But if you keep that comment to yourself, it's not going to help you. It's not going to help the other one, you know. Let's make sure that you have a tool that can be really good for you. And once again, I always tell the guys, you guys go and beat each other on Sunday at the track, okay? Mm-hmm. Here we need to continue working together. A few months before it was announced that Dave Parasak would be leaving his role as director of Ford Performance, to return to a production side engineering role with the company, he sat down with us for a wide-ranging conversation that included this thick riff on aligning Team Penske and Stuart Haas Racing. Everyone in the Ford camp knows that I am pushing very strong for the sharing and for a one Ford approach where it makes sense. Mm-hmm. The teams are always going to have some individual aspects, and, right. and, and that you you know that's fine, and that's they should do that. Uh, and at the end of the day. They're the ones that want to cross the finish line. Yeah. But I've told all the Ford guys, when we're running, you know, 10 Fords in the top 10, then I'll, I'll be the happiest guy watching who battles it out to cross yeah. the finish line, right? But yeah. until then, we got to work together. And um, when we brought Stuart Haas on, you know, I called Penske, called Roger up and let him know that, hey, this was happening. And, this was, and his response was phenomenal. I didn't know what kind of response I was going to get. <laughs> um, but his response was absolutely phenomenal. He said, Dave, awesome move for Ford. It's going to raise the chinning bar for all of us. He said that is going to make all of us better. Fantastic job, right? Yeah. And so ever since then, uh, Penske and Stuart Haas have done a really nice job of integrating, learning each other. Um, what role do we play? We're kind of the, you know, we're the ones that come in that 
each team has trust in forward performance. It's really important to me that they, that they have that trust in us. And so the things that have to remain uh, within a certain team, secret within that team, they know that it will, absolutely will. Yeah. And those things that we th- can then commonize or have discussion on, then forward performance facilitates that discussion and dialogue. And so, you know, we have to make sure that we don't violate that trust and that when those things that can't transfer over, that, that they just don't transfer over. He didn't race a NASCAR stock car for the first time in roughly 20 years, but Tony Stewart still was easy to find last season. Just go to any dirt track which is where we caught up to him last July at his beloved Eldora Speedway. Smoke had some good tales about moonlighting and a new trucking gig, and he naturally couldn't help but weigh in on the driver merchandise controversy that was making waves around that time. Some of the races here lately, they drive in the semi, and uh, I've been driving the t-shirt trailer. Oh, really? <laughs> so I've, been, I've been driving a Ford Dually with uh, the t-shirt trailer behind it, towing it to the racetrack to... <laughs> to sell our souvenirs out of it. And, and as dumb as it's going to sound and people aren't going to understand it or they're going to laugh at me for saying this, I mean, that's that's what a lot of the, the late model drivers, the sprint car drivers do. I mean, that's how you offset the cost of running right. these race cars. And for the guys that that's how they make a living, I mean, the souvenir side is big on the on the short track side. We've, we've sold a lot of souvenirs this year, which has been great. I know Kyle Larson mentioned something <laughs> about souvenirs the other day. But it's a little bit of a controversy, yes. Yeah, I know it's been a controversy, <laughs> but everywhere we've gone and we've taken our, our souvenir trailer, we've done great with it. I mean, it, and when you count the amount of people that are in the stands at a short track race versus an NASCAR race, I mean, we've been doing really well with it everywhere we've gone. You know, I know for the guy, for the drivers that that's their full-time job is driving race cars. That that t-shirt business is, is huge. So uh, thank God that it's not under the NASCAR side of it, or these guys wouldn't be making anything on the souvenirs. The guys on the NASCAR side aren't making squat on souvenirs. And it's Something that too, it, it ticks me off daily. Too many fingers in the pie, basically, right? Too many fingers in the pie, the and, and the drivers that have worked their entire life to build their brand aren't the ones that are making the most money on it. It's the ones that are printing the shirts and this and that. And for some reason, I don't know why they're the ones that make the most money out of it when they're they're making money off everybody else. Before heading to Aldora, we also talked with the track's general manager Roger Slack, who shared the wonderful backstory of how the NASCAR Truck Series came to Rossburg, Ohio. I just said to somebody, I said, hey, has NASCAR released that Truck Series schedule yet? <laughs> Got on Google, didn't find anything. Put a call down to Daytona and left a voicemail. And I get a call back pretty quick. I, I called Tony to let him know I'd made the call. Tony was part of the chase and talked with uh, Steve O'Donnell at uh, Chicago, you know, that, that the kickoff program they did that year and kept on proceeding. And there'd be a couple steps forward and a couple steps back and a couple steps forward and a couple steps back. And it just kept on going. And then uh, it, really probably one of the coolest things I've ever done in my career was when we had the top secret test uh, with Austin, uh, Dylan, RCR, and Tony, the two trucks. I, I worked directly with Robin Pemberton on it at the time. It was not NASCAR sanctioned. Actually, we streamed the video from the event through like some cyclist's website or something so that the necessary people in Daytona and Charlotte could watch it. And we got rain. We got rained out the weekend before and uh, it rained all day Saturday and it rained Monday and we were delayed. And uh, it was like, oh man. This just is not going to work. Finally, when we got them on the track to see all those crew guys out there, and I know the RCR guys, I know Richard had threatened them with 
taken off his watch or something, <laughs> if any of this got public, to see them all with their phones and their iPads, you know, those are the engineer guys with the iPads, taking pictures and video of the first time that that truck came around at speed. I mean, that was pretty cool. Second or third lap, Robin raised his leg and gave that good old Northeast style hockey pump that he just scored a goal. <laughs> um, I, I knew from that point forward we're we're in pretty good shape diane hall is hendrick motorsports director of vehicle engineering and that's the latest stop in a career that literally has taken her around the globe as an engineer in formula one indycar and now nascar for the past decade this was the third time i've spoken with diane in 20 years and with all that experience she has an interesting perspective when asked about how she'd seen series try to emphasize a driver's talent. And, and it's a difficult question to answer because if you try and make everybody even, I don't think it necessarily means that the driver is going to come out. One thing that the IndyCar did in the 90s, which was great, was the rules were pretty open. And so it actually formed a certain amount of excitement, this new cars coming out or this new development and put into the hands of a good driver you know for a few races they had that advantage and and sometimes i think it's it, it, you can close down the rules too much in the hope that you're going to cut cost and you're going to let it come more into the driver's hands but the cream of the crop always get to the top whether it be the team or the driver nbc sports group won't be picking up the nascar race schedule for another five months or so But NBCSN will have coverage of the 2018 NASCAR Hall of Fame induction ceremony next Friday, January 19th at 8 p.m. So let's wrap up our best of 2017 look ahead 2018 episode with two of the newest members of the NASCAR Hall of Fame who both recently were on the NASCAR NBC podcast. The first was inducted last year when Mark Martin also made his second appearance on the podcast and had an intriguing explanation of how he knew it was time to retire. Was there just a moment in 2013 when you realized my skills just are starting to diminish? I can feel it kind of moving away from me? You know, I started noticing it as far back as 09. Really? But it wasn't big, but I started noticing it. And we won all those races in 09. Yeah. Because, you know, my car was just faster than everybody's for some reason. Alan Gustafson and whatever, I don't know. We just hit on some kind of crazy magic. And I thought my car was faster than everybody's, whether it was or not. And it happened to work out. You know, the the enthusiasm means a lot. And Mm -hmm. we were just, we were on the magic dust that year. But I became more and more dissatisfied with the quality of product I was putting out. I felt really good about one lap things or, or a lot of things. But I started being dissatisfied with restarting and some of the crazy stuff that was going on on the racetrack and you know I just felt like I was slowing down yeah I just felt like I I wasn't processing as fast as I did when I was younger and so therefore you're not as sure so therefore you're not you don't make as many moves you don't make the moves that you might because you you're not sure I just didn't feel like I was racing as good as as I as I could at one time and that was big you know, that was big. You know, when you see the writing on the wall and you see a decline, you know, I have no interest in driving cars around in circles fast. I only have interest in being the best, and you've got to be in the right zip code to be the best. And when you start moving outside that zip code uh, because you're on the other side of your career, it's it wasn't any fun. 
Finally, we have a man who's being inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame on Friday, January 19th. Again, 8 p.m., NBCSN. Many, myself included, would say it's an overdue honor for probably one of the five greatest crew chiefs of all time. Ray Evernham won three championships with Jeff Gordon and enjoyed some unparalleled successes. And he also built a special friendship with Dale Earnhardt, which he talked about on the podcast. And I always treated him with respect, but I was always in awe of what he could accomplish. And it wasn't like he was that much older than me. So we talked about a lot of things. And he knew that I drove modifieds. And he, he got to see me drive a couple times at North Wilkesboro and places like that. And I even drove he, in a fire suit. He and I were the same size. I even drove in one of his fire suits uh, for a long time. And uh, we just had a good relationship because even though I, I had tremendous amount of respect for him and wasn't intimidated by him like everybody else, I used to give it back to him and I think he liked that. Yeah. You know, where he, you know, he'd come up and grab you by the neck or he'd whatever, but when I get behind him, yeah. you know, you know, I would kind of do the same thing. I think he he respected my uh knowledge and ability to make a car handle as as much as I respected his uh ability as a driver, but more so you, you you have people in your life, certain people in your life that drive you to be better, even though they don't know it. They're not out mm-hmm. there trying to make you better. Mm-hmm. But you you are either care enough about these people or you respect these people so much that you want to impress them. You want to be on their level. Dale Earnhardt was that guy for me, right? He 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 was the best in the business, and I wanted to 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 show him that I could be the best in the business. I wanted to race him. I want I wanted to be worthy of being able to compete with him. The fact that he allowed me to be in that kidding around arena mm-hmm. showed me that respect back. And that was probably one of the, the greatest things. I look back in my career being able to have a friendship with him. And we weren't, you know, we, we yelled at one another a couple times and things like that. But the fact that I yelled back at him, I think even he looked at, you know, and then he would respect, bust me, goes, right? you know, yeah. he's like, don't you respect my seven championships? Don't you? So I said, I do respect your seven championships, but don't run in my damn car. You know, <laughs> so it was uh, we in. And I, I said this and meant it. You know, the day he died, I knew that racing had changed for me. And I just said to people, it's, it's just like it's never going to be the same. It's never going to be the same. And that's the first that was my first day. Uh, really, as a Dodge team owner, was my first race, mm-hmm. and uh, we lost Dale Earnhardt in in that race, and it never was the same. I just don't. I I think that day some of my fire went out. Some poignant thoughts there from Ray Evernham about Dale Earnhardt. I'd encourage you, if you haven't yet, to listen to that episode with Ray Evernham or re-listen to it if you already have. I spent some time with it finding that clip, and that was a great conversation. In addition to telling a few other. Terrific Dale Earnhardt stories. Ray Evernham also had some vivid memories of the Rainbow Warriors, his battles with NASCAR inspectors that were quite hilarious, and his legacy with some of his past employees, particularly in what Chad Knauss' career has meant to him. And that'll wrap up the opening episode of the third season of the NASCAR NBC podcast. As always, many thanks for listening. I'm working on the guest list for 2018, and we might also have some wrinkles in how we do this this year. So hopefully that will give you many more reasons to listen in the future. And thanks again to all the PR representatives in the NASCAR industry who helped us with booking guests last year and making this episode possible. A reminder, the NASCAR NBC podcast is on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play. Wherever you go to get your podcasts, you should find this one. If you can leave a rating or review or just tell people that you like what you hear, that really helps us out. And if you have feedback, send to me on Twitter 
at Nate Ryan is the handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR and NBC podcast.